Blog Talk Radio. It's already done. It's the Pressure Points Unpacked Podcast with host Tyra Little. We're live Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. This show deals with personal and community issues by getting to the root cause and causes on an open and raw level. We're unpacking emotional, spiritual, mental, and physical topics that influence and often control us. Get ready to unload, examine, and process. Let's get unpacked on Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, hello, and welcome to Pressure Points Unpacked Podcast. I'm your host, Tyra Little. And every Tuesday, we are here unpacking spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So today, we're going to continue the conversation of the state of education in South Carolina. And so today, our guest that we have is Mr. Nicholas Pearson, principal of Sumter High School. Nick, thank you for not finding it robbery to come on. Um, I know you have a very busy and full day, so I definitely appreciate you being here. And so at this time, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the listeners who you are and give them a little bit about yourself. Well, Tyra, first of all, I want to thank you for giving me this opportunity to share your platform. I'll thank you for the work that you're doing here. But, uh, but nevertheless, like she said, my name is Nicholas Pearson. Currently, I'm the principal at um, Sumter High School. Well, first of all, I'm a man of God, husband, father, educator, and I like to say I'm a lifelong learner. Um, so, you know, with those things being said, I'm always excited to talk about education. Um, education was a, a second calling for myself. Um, I started off, I uh, graduated from college with an agribusiness degree, and um, I started teaching after that for a few years in Florence County here in South Carolina, in the Florence County School District 1. Um, left Florence County School District 1, went over to Timmonsville, which is Florence 4, stayed over there for a year or so, and then I went to Chesterfield County where I spent a good bit of my education career before heading to Sumter. Uh, when I left Chesterfield County, I did leave Chesterfield County as an administrator and uh, went to Sumter High School as an assistant principal back in 2013. And um, in 2015, I was named the principal at Sumter High School. So um, at that time, when I was named principal, I was actually one of the youngest principals in the state of South Carolina, believe it or not. So it was uh, yeah. a, definitely a promotion that that it was God-ordained, but definitely wasn't mm-hmm. something that I saw coming. But, uh, but coming from a family of educators, my mother was an administrator, um, did, did 38 years in education. My dad did the same. My dad did 39 years in education. So coming from an educational yeah. family, uh, my brother currently teaches. Uh, my, my wife, she's in the educational field. So we just come from a family educated. Education is one of the things that's near to our heart. Um, so that's kind of who I am in a nutshell. I'm a family-oriented guy. i got two beautiful, two beautiful children, Nathan and Grace, and a beautiful wife, Keisha. Um, but right now, that's who I am. And, um, and a lifelong learner, that's just who I am. Hey, hey, you said a mouthful. And for the listeners out there, um, if you've been following the series that we've been doing, on the state of education in South Carolina, Keisha was on the week before last. So Nick's lovely wife was on the week before last. So, um, and definitely that was a very informative um, series that we had with, with Keisha as well. So I'm definitely looking forward to you. So 
as we know, the biggest thing that are in, that's in the headlines, you know, we're going to go ahead and hit the COVID situation in the head. As we know, um, education was already having its different issues before COVID. But now, um, you know, you have the whole COVID thing where and we're still in this pandemic, um, very much so in it still. Um, and I know that there has been when you just hear the news and all over the U.S., you hear where there are teachers that are constantly out. Um, you're hearing children that are saying, you know, hey, we've been placed in, in the gym because we don't have a teacher. There's not enough teachers here. Um, how, how are you dealing with this situation in school? Because, I, I mean, I know you would have to be, you guys will have to be dealing with the same thing in Sumter. So how, how are you dealing with this? Well, um, I like to say, we're dealing with it day by day. It is no class, no textbook, there's no playbook for what we're dealing with with COVID-19. Um, this is something that snuck up on the field of education, like it did the whole world. Um, so mm-hmm. <clears throat> the first thing I tell folks is to stay encouraged um, because there's no playbook for it. And we, we're learning as we go. Um, so as far as, you know, some of the classroom issues we have with staffing and, um, you know, pretty much recruitment and retention is something that's so big right now, trying to get teachers into the classroom while so many teachers are leaving the classroom. Um, that's a big daunting task. But right now, like you said, it is an issue. Um, trying to make sure you have certified sound instructors in front of kids giving sound instruction every day is a struggle. Um, currently right now, my building, uh, we shut down last week for the whole week just to kind of recoup <coughs> to get some fresh bodies into the building because we did have a little bit of an outbreak. Um, but the, the, the things that kids are saying are very true. Um, but right now, one thing that we're doing, we're seeing teachers step up to the plate in ways you have not seen before. Um, that's when things that's going unnoticed. <clears throat> um, many of our teachers are really going above and beyond by covering extra classes, mm-hmm. uh, helping their colleagues plan, <clears throat> and getting creative in the virtual capacity to make sure kids are still getting, uh, getting instruction. Um, one thing we learned during last year during the virtual <clears throat> was that um, a lot of kids don't learn the virtual capacity, mainly because of student engagement. Um, so a lot of our teachers learned how to engage students in the virtual platform um, last year. So this year they didn't perfect it. So last week we were virtual last week. This has been our best week for virtual instruction because our teachers were able to hone in their skills and get better at getting kids engaged in a virtual capacity. So like you said, a lot of, a lot of the issues we have right now with COVID-19 um, are things that we really have not practiced for. We ever been able to mm-hmm. um, you know, have a plan for. Um, so in education, we kind of we spoil. We plan, we do fire drills every month. We plan for fire drills, right? We do tornado right. drills. We plan for tornado drills. We do lesson plans. We plan for lessons. We do emergency lesson plans. But COVID-19 was one thing where the thing we had to dig into our back pocket was monitoring the desk. Well, a lot of teachers are trained to monitor the desk, but a lot of times you don't really have to do it. But, um, <laughs> but this was one of those things where it really took us by storm. But I must say that the, education, the educators really have taken it, by, taken it by horn. And there's some good things that's coming out of it. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, COVID-19 is definitely one of those things that we're going to definitely use our benefit as we move forward in education here in South Carolina, and I guess in the world. Right, absolutely. So in listening to what you were saying, um, I had just recently spoken with a, another educator, um, and one of the things that she suggested that she talked about, just like you said, I mean, hey, this caught everybody by surprise. But now that um, virtual learning has been introduced on a major scale and a major, you know, 
player here. Is this something that you think that the school system maybe would continue to try to perfect that or maybe have, I don't know, a day out of the week to do that? Or what, what do you think is best in order to keep the teachers and the students prepared that at any given time we may have to stay at home and learn? Well, um, great to ask that question. Um, you know, one thing that we've done um, in the state of South Carolina is every district had to produce a um, an e-learning plan. Pretty much, how you going to do e-learning instruction? Um, pretty much, when you have to do any kind of natural disaster, be it hurricanes, snow days, um, any kind of inclement weather. So now, what we used to have to do back in the good old days was we missed a day because of snow. We had to make those days up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got to challenge all those makeup days. Now, as many of the districts in the state have submitted their e-learning plans and gotten approved by the State Department, we can now have e-learning instruction on those inclement weather days that we had pretty much last week. So on last week Friday, you saw a lot of districts shut down because of the potential of inclement weather. None of those days in most districts would not be made up because all the districts went to e-learning days. So I think one of the, even if most districts don't plan to do a one-day a week for e-learning, I think just for those days alone, just for inclement weather, um, power outages, any kind of disaster you have at school, you just have to make those days up. Now we mm-hmm. can go all the time e-learning platforms. Um, that can be one way I think the teachers could do the home their skills in. Another thing is most of the districts in the state of South Carolina had to go out and have <coughs> purchased either, you know, pretty much perfect an e-learning platform, be it Google Classroom, be it Canvas, Schoology, any type of those platforms where the kids pretty much are using it on a daily basis now more so than just as an emergency. One thing we learned during COVID was, like, say, some school district, for instance, we use Google Classroom as our LMS, our learning management system. But a lot of our teachers, we'd say about 80% of our teachers were not using it on a daily basis. It was just used when we so feared that we want to be acute messing in the classroom and things of that nature. So mm-hmm. now that it is a part of your daily instruction, you go around the classrooms now, you see teachers using the virtual platform, the virtual components, daily in your lessons now. So now so when the kid goes home, you have to do it without you being face-to-face. Now the kid knows how to navigate the platform. They know how to post and respond. They know how to ask questions, how to submit tests, to submit assignments, pull up videos, access the textbooks. All of these things here to teach kids during, <coughs> during COVID-19, during the initial shutdown back in March. We, the teachers are using it on a daily basis now. So I think the more you use a skill, the better mm-hmm. you get at it. Um, Absolutely. One thing I challenge my teachers with right now is, you know, practice, <laughs> practice for the unknown. <clears throat> so now, every day, plan to when we leave. I tell my teachers when you leave today, plan not to come back tomorrow in the classroom. Okay. One thing that caught us off guard with COVID nineteen was when we left. <laughs> we left. A lot of people thought they were gonna come back. You know, they thought they'd be back like in the building. <laughs> so we gonna come back after a couple of days, and that wasn't so. So every day now we plan lessons and we look at the pacing guys. We start putting our curriculum. Whatever we start doing on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, plan not to be back face-to-face. So when you take that approach in your classroom, mm-hmm. your instruction changes. So now we walk around the classroom, you see a lot of more teachers um, up and about moving, teachers recording lessons, posting them for kids that are at home sick, um, kids that are homebound. So those ways that we're practicing those things now that we didn't do in the past. So I think that with those little small things right there, I think that holistically we ever have to go to a virtual platform for a more permanent basis, I think that the teachers and the kids will more adapt to it. Like mm-hmm. exactly not least, I think a lot of kids, a lot of parents thought that their kids can learn that platform. And I think that in the field of, <coughs> the field of K-12 education, 
we miss mm-hmm. you Um University of Phoenix and Grand Canyon have been doing this for a long time, right? So, right. you know, this, these places of high, these places of high education, they're not doing this, you know, just not to make money and not to be effective. Mm-hmm. So they mastered virtual learning and teaching a long time ago. We just missed the market paying attention to it. So the thing is, we have to look at what they did, and that's kind of what we did in my district. We kind of looked at what these other colleges and institutions were doing for a long time and pulled some of those laws that they already created and apply those to, you know, secondary and elementary education. So I think that, you know, now since we know better, we'll do better. But I think mm-hmm. the big thing is the teachers and the kids are practicing stuff every day weekly. So I think that now the kids are more adapt to it. I think the parents are more, somewhat more trusting of it. You know, it could be a learning curve still there, right. and it's hard Absolutely. to get that buy-in. But I think over time we'll get better with it. Absolutely, because um... – I mean, I, I think that this is something, and, and I like the answers, the feedback that you're giving, Nick. Um, <clears throat> it's really good um, because I really do think that this is something that we're we're definitely may get a lot more familiar with. Um, and you mentioned something that I thought was really good too with the, the students that are, you know, homebound. Because that's that was going to be one of the next questions that I asked was. You know, do you see this as when children are out because they're sick or something, you know, to that effect or that they have to be out, that is there a way that maybe the teacher is still teaching, but you have a way to still bring that child in so it's not like they're really missing a day? Yeah. Or do you think think that 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 will cause more of an issue? Well, two things, right? So, one, I think that's a great thing to do, right? I think the teachers can, you know, can, can address the learning with kids while they're at home in any capacity, let them sit in there waiting for work to get sit in there for a homebound teacher. I think mm-hmm. the kid can tap into the classroom and feel for the learning community. I think it's a great thing. <clears throat> but the other side of it is, um, this is the political side of it, right? So one thing that happened during COVID-19 was we burnt out our teachers. We, we literally burnt out educators. A lot of people left the profession because of it. And some people felt that they should have been compensated better for it. So what you see now is, um, Teachers can no longer do what we call dual modalities without being compensated for, you know, in their salary. So meaning that, mm-hmm. you know, teacher cannot be in their classroom teaching English for instruction and have <laughs> 10 kids at home logging in virtually without that teacher having to get compensated for teaching in what we call a dual modality. So last year what we did was a, a lot of schools went back with hybrid learning, right? We started phasing kids back in. So we had some kids that were allowed to come back to school and some kids stayed at home. So said teacher might have 30 kids in the classroom, 15 kids at home, 15 kids face-to-face, and the teacher was responsible for instructing both sets of kids. And that really was a daunting task a lot of our teachers. You know, instead of all you teaching in virtual capacity, but now I've got to do classroom management with the kids in front of me and engage the kids at home on the computer screen, it was oh, a wow. lot. So what yeah. happened was yeah. the legislature put out the whole law now that teachers can no longer teach in a dual modality without being compensated. So some districts, you know, like, you know, always happens with inconsistency. Some districts are compensating teachers and are really encouraging dual modality instruction for teachers that want to do it. Um, I have some teachers like that in my building that, are, that take the bull by the horns and make sure, hey, look, I will teach this amount of kids that are home on homebound. You can put them in my class, and I'll be more than happy to teach them, and I will teach the kids in front of me, and I'll set my camera up and lecture. I'll engage those kids and have the lessons and everything available for them in the Google Classroom. And we go fine, and the district compensates those teachers. But other districts are like, no, we're not doing it. Either you're going to be a virtual <laughs> teacher or you're going to be a face-to-face teacher. <clears throat> and, you know, so every district has picked up their own models, right? So 
Right. You see some districts in South Carolina have their own virtual school. And then you have some of them have what they call it, you know, a, a, a hybrid, you know, model. Um, here in Central, what we decided to do is we went with what we call um, we have a virtual school and we have a dual modality um, situation as well. But our virtual school is ran by an outside source, which you see a lot of companies have came in to education and have pretty much, um, you know, recruited teachers to teach kids in a virtual capacity and teach in the districts that came on and partnered with these companies where the kids are getting it. Um, having <laughs> haven't seen enough to have an opinion of the one way or the other uh, so far, but I do know that it's something about being a part of your home school and your home community um, instead of being a, you know, being a split model. But, but most definitely, I think that um, it's a good thing now that we have that in our back pocket for kids that are, you know, kids that have sustained injuries, um, kids that are homebound because of, you know, anxiety or any other type of um, disorder they may have or a kid that may just be traveling abroad with their family. You know, they might have a like, like right now, we have a military base or something, right? So I have kids that, you know, parents might be, you know, going to see relatives. They might be gone for a little longer than expected. So now the kid can, you know, log into the classroom and, and see it in the virtual capacity. So I think a lot of these things are going to help out. Um, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the homebound instruction is definitely one of those good things now because it is helping out without having to find those homebound teachers, right? You know, so now you're at home all day. In the old homebound scenario, that homebound kid wouldn't get the instruction until – three or four o'clock in the afternoon until oh, a teacher that's currently teaching right. will leave the school. Or if you might find a retired teacher that maybe even comes to the school day, but 50% of the time, you're usually a trained teacher. Um, so <clears throat> I think now with the virtual and the, the learning management system that we have in place now, I think it's definitely going to help these kids in the future moving forward. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, Ms. White has a, has a question for you briefly mentioned uh, teacher burnout and how your teachers are going above and beyond. How are you motivating and encouraging them to stay the course? Well, what we did was um, we removed some of those day-to-day things that we, we know that are, that are very tedious, right? So um, <clears throat> one thing that most teachers like to do but hate to do is, is lesson plans, right? We do it because we have to do it, but you hate to do it because it's always one of those things that really critiqued by administration. It's kind of how we get a snapshot into your classroom. So one thing we've done in my building is um, we allow teachers to now submit their lesson plans by looking at their learning management system. So now you don't have to do two things, right? Once you set up your, your, your lesson or your unit in Google Classroom, I no longer go in and per se check your lesson plans like I used to with a fine school call. Um, that's the one thing we do. Second thing is we kind of try to reduce the amount of unnecessary duty posts and duty stations and things of that nature, right? Because a lot of times, you know, if you really think a little bit hard, you can find some to cover that duty for that teacher so they can get that full bit of planning and get that personal time they need and kind of get themselves up together. That's another thing we've done in my building. Hold on one second. Let me get, clear my throat real quick. And then last but not least, what we've done is the district has really gotten on board with the teachers with the teacher administrators. We have wellness days now where we let teachers go home early from work. And literally, like, on, on this Friday coming up, we have a wellness day in our district where Teachers will come to school at 12 o'clock. We sit all the teachers home. Let them just go home and take care of your personal business. Be it, you know, get something done for your children, um, relax, do some self-care, <coughs> things of that nature. Um, so the district has really helped administrators out by letting the teachers have a wellness day, which is very, very beneficial uh, to our teachers. Um, but in the buildings, I think that another thing is we really, we really let teachers do more um, – more collaborative, you know, more collaborative learning amongst themselves. Um, 
So we used to all these PD days, right? You know, professional development, you got to go here, go there, go here, go there. What we've done in my building is pretty much we start to pull on people's strength in the building. So if you have mastered the skill and the technique, I let you teach your peers, right? I'm not going to send you all over the country right now or send you uh, to another school or send a whole four-hour professional development. We really get some stuff pre-recorded in the building. We send it to the teachers, let them do it in the classrooms at their own pace. Now, there is a check on learning that we do make the teachers do, but when you have the comfort of your own class or even the comfort of your own home to get your professional development done, I've noticed that teachers are very more appreciative of having those kind of things done instead of having to sit in an in a auditorium or a classroom. So those are some of the things that we're doing to try to help alleviate some of that burnout. Um, you know, hope it's working. <coughs> I mean, we'll find out soon. We, we, the contracts come out and see who's been retained. But um, but most definitely, I think that um, the teacher burnout is real. Is real. Um, and I think that giving teachers opportunities to see that there's time for themselves and make teachers do it. Um, often, you know, teachers will have a lot of time, but they will do something else in that lot of amount of time. What I've done is I will trick my teachers sometimes, and I'll call a faculty meeting, and when they show up for the faculty meeting, I'll send them home. So I know that you plan to be talking to me for an hour. You know, I know you already got the babysitter lined up. You, got, you, know, you already got supper pushed back whatever you've already done, so now take this time and go home and just leave. So second, I have to force teachers into doing some things for themselves. Um, I don't get to do that every week, but, um, but, you know, every other week we do try to do some things like that just to make sure they feel um, appreciative and appreciated. But giving them time, I, I, every, every educator will always tell you they just there's not enough time in the day to get what they need to get done. Awesome. You seem like you're very personable, so I'm pretty sure you have – great teacher buy-in and anything that you want to implement in your building. My next question is, I don't know if you guys have a full-time school psychologist um, or if they just kind of pop in and out as needed, but how do you go about making sure that your teachers or even yourself have that relationship or even just more communication outside of testing with your school psychologist? Wow. Uh, great question. Um, so I guess I should, I'm going to go backwards before I answer that question. Something high school is like the one that I think right now we're the sixth out of school in South Carolina right now. So right now there's 2,400 students in Something High School. Um, so with a population that size, Something High School is pretty much big as some school district in the state, right? So in our building, we do have our own psychologists, and some days I have two. Um, so um, with that being said, my psychologist does a great job. Both of them do a great job as far as, you know, um, create relationships with the teachers in the special education department and outside the special education department. Um, being visible is one of the things I definitely think that my psychologists do a great job of doing is being visible when not needed, right? I, I'm, I'm always about, you know, just being visible so people know you and know what you do and know, you know, your temperament and your attitude and know your demeanor before we need you. So I don't want to mm. see you when we have a parent that requests, you know, for their child to receive, uh, I think my child needs to receive special education services. It's okay, let's, let's have the meeting and let's go ahead and do the evaluation process and so on and so forth. And then the teacher meets the psychologist. I want you to know who the person is before they come to your room. And when y'all sit down and start getting the documentation together, there's already some level of communication with that person. Um, I think being personable um, is one of those things that the psychologists do very well in our building as far as, um, you know, getting on the, knees, getting on the level of our parents. I've been in I've been in four school districts, and I've seen some psychologists that have, you know, 
over-taught parents or use words or verbiage um, that parents can understand. You know, so kind of hitting parents in the middle of the road. Don't don't talk beneath, beneath them, but don't talk above mm-hmm. them as well. And make sure you hit those parents with information and give them good, sound advice um, is one thing that they do. And I think the one I think I have right now, the one mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, she's great at giving examples, right? So she has a, mm-hmm. a good a good way of, um, you know, breaking it down with parents and to give them a real-life example of what's trying to be accomplished for their child. So we start talking about accommodations for special education children and things of that nature. When you start talking about, like, things like preferential seating, right, you know, Parent, like, my child don't need preferential feeding. What's that? You know, so you might get that kind of attitude, but no, let me explain to you what that is. <clears throat> so they do a really good job of giving an example. Especially with high school kids, you know, giving a parent an example and the kid an example so they'll know that this, um, <laughs> what we try to accomplish is give you strategies and, and, and things that's going to enhance your learning, right? So um, I think the psychologists do a great job in doing that. But um, for the school my size, you know, having that relationship helps, you know, Heal some of those barriers that kind of prolong some of those evaluations on kids. Um, and I also learned that, you know, relationship with the teachers, right? It makes some of these IEP meetings go pretty fast. It makes some of these uh, reevaluations go pretty fast because, mm-hmm. you know, you're not, it's not awkward, right? It's a, it's a fluid type of conversation, fluid relationship. So I must say that that department and my building does a great job. And um, I've been blessed with, um, with two full time, with one full time and one person as we need them come through. Um, and we've been blessed, honestly. I mean, I can't say that every school has that. Yeah, that's very rare. Yeah, that's very rare. So, you know, I think that those are one of the things that kind of, you know, it, it, it helps out the environment of the building, right? So a lot of times the stigma with kids, and this, this is your special education is the most common platform. We can talk about social learning, you know, you know, social emotional learning as well. But right now the most common thing that a lot of people associate school psychologists with is, you know, identifying kids with special education services, right? But mm-hmm. in, in the wrong environment, the wrong culture, once a kid is given the delineation of having the IEP, some teachers don't always agree with it. Some teachers feel as though the mm-hmm. kid may be lazy, the kid may be spoiled, the kid may be BAD, or the kid may be <laughs> whatever it may be, right? They have their own opinion. But the thing mm-hmm. is, what we hear, we hear to educate the child. So a lot of times I've seen where once the kid gets their accommodations, all those good things come out, some teachers are kind of apprehensive about fully giving the kid the combination like it should be. They walk up to the line of the letter of the law, but not implement it with fidelity. Um, so I think right. that having that group relationship with the psychologist as the IEP is being formulated and being derived, right, and, 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 and having that input, it's better for the child in the long run and the parent, you know. So I mm-hmm. think that, 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 that communication is pretty much a rich environment with a culture for the kids and the families and something where the kid can be successful. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Um, Nick, we have a caller. Um, I'm going to open the mic, and the last four is 5375. So, um, okay, caller 5375. 5375, do you have a question? Oh, excuse me. I'm just talking and I'm on mute. Please forgive me. Uh, I like what I'm hearing from everybody on the panel. Um, but, uh, Mr. Pearson, I, a question. Because you mentioned uh, pacing guides and you also talked yes. about um, lesson plans. Um, 
how are how how is that going with you with the pacing guys and the lesson plans for the students being able to receive um instructional content so my guess my question is how is it are you are you implementing more instructional strategies since the pandemic and are the instructional strategies beneficial to the students because now we're at the point where we have to do creative teaching yes ma'am yes ma'am great question so one thing that we've learned over the last, um, I guess, 18 months is that um, we've challenged our teachers to do a lot of mini lessons, right? So learning loss is a very real component of what transpired with COVID-19. So we always talk about doing mini lessons before you get involved in your actual instructional day. So even though we have the pacing guides and the lesson plans there, we look at the lesson plans to kind of see what is the objective for this week, what is the objective for this unit, what is their big objective, right? So if we take something like um, about Algebra 2, if a kid has a deficiency in fractions, and we know that the kid needs to have a maximum fraction to accomplish these next three units in algebra two. Every day before you go into those lessons in algebra two, I want you to do a mini lesson on fractions. It could be just, you know, talk about the nominal numerator, it could be talking about just doing mixed fractions. I want you to refresh these kids' memories and their minds on what they're gonna to need to be successful in this particular content. Same thing in history. Um, if we're talking about you know, you in U.S. history, and you about to have something on the kiddies have some level of understanding of the Constitution. Do a mini lesson on the Constitution before you get into the deep dive into your civics lesson. So, what we challenge our teachers with is give me a breakdown of what's your mini lesson going to be. I'm talking about 10 to 12 minutes of a 90 minute class block on reengaging these kids' minds because of the learning loss. And what it happens is what I've learned, and what our teachers learn is once we get into these mini lessons we really find out what is really lacking in the learning loss instead of guessing. Um, so often right now, education is about telling, oh, there's a learning loss. Oh, there's a learning loss. Kids don't know. Kids don't know. What they don't know. Like, what, don't just say they don't know. Give me some specifics of what they don't know to be successful. So we try to get through all the meeting, try to get through all the grass and get to the real meat and potatoes of what kids have lost and what we're trying to accomplish moving forward. So that's one thing we're doing right now in our building is a bunch of mini lessons, but also really um, – looking at the pacing guides and making sure that we are on a, a, a right trajectory for those intercourse testing, you know, make sure whatever we got going on with the intercourse exam, make sure we're on the right trajectory with that testing date, but also we make sure we give the kids what they need to be successful in the next course they have coming up. The one thing that's unique about high school is, you know, most of our courses have a prerequisite for the next course. If you take an English one, you need to have a passing grade in English one to get the English two, and so on and so forth. So what we do is we make what we, we meet as a department, and we have all the English 1 teachers in the room and all the English 2 teachers in the room. You know, we understand as a letter law, what do the English 1 2 teachers must have, right? What do they got to have to be successful in English 2? And let's get that out there first, right? So we'll get the pacer guide, we'll pull that stuff out, and we'll pull these three units. Okay, we got to have this. So we'll master those units before we move on to the other two units that are in the pacer guide as well. So um, just having that collaboration among the teachers in the high school setting has been very successful. And I know some of my colleagues in the other um, in the other areas that have been talking about how they're doing some cross-curricular planning and, you know, some vertical alignment, things of that nature that's really been helping out with the instructional loss in the buildings. But I think just being communi- communicating with the other teachers about what kids need when they get to the next course has been valuable because what we've learned is not to say that some stuff is um, not needed, but in order to catch kids up, we need to catch kids up with what they need to know, right? And let's not, let's not be naive to the world that we live in now. So the overall education has changed. 
So a lot of part of education is one is the you know the call and response, the memorization that we did growing up in school. Where we got to memorize the periodic table and memorize you know your multiplication facts and memorize all these different things. But now we're in the informational world, so we need to teach kids some memorization, but also how to access information and how to apply it. And I think once I got the teacher to understand that I don't need the kids to remember the preamble to the Constitution verbatim. I need them to be able to understand it and to articulate it well and to give it back to me in their own words. And that's what it has the meat and the value to it. So I think those are the things that we've done is kind of pretty much be more collaborative, a lot of mini lessons, and really, really, really picking apart those pacing guys and make sure we hit the standards but only hit the stuff that kids really need as they go to the next course. Okay, caller, did he answer your question? That was a, a lot to digest. Sounds like you all have amped up your planning. Um, <laughs> sounds like you all have amped up the planning procedures. Um, with the okay, here's another part. If you don't mind, because it sounds like with a lot of people are struggling. How really? How do you find at this level um, the reading comprehension of our students? Because I think if we had that. Um, Reading is different. Reading is so many facets to reading. Um, and I found um, a lot of kids where, where I've been reading that um, a lot of kids are behind. So what? I, how are you all actually um, preparing or to get them on grade level? Because you have a lot of question. kids. Yes, so yes. yes. we have a lot of kids. That's a great question. Um, so what we've done, and it's weird that you asked that question. We just got finished doing this. Uh, we've really just now uh, revamped our research and seed plan in our building and kind of made it more um, made it more practical, more so than, um, what's the word to use? Made it more practical, more so than lying in a whole bunch of educational verbiage and stuff that wasn't really affecting the kids. Um, so what we do now, we try to make sure every classroom has a library and all that good stuff. And we also want teachers to be, to be reading teachers as well. You know, kind of have the, have the fact where kids can actually read in every classroom, every subject matter, and also make sure the kids are comprehending the reading. One thing that we learn at the high school level is a lot of kids can call words, right? They can call them out. But a lot of kids are not able to comprehend what they're reading. And it shows up when they get into the English 2 uh, intercourse test, and we get those, those scores that we kind of see it. Um, it used to be the English 1 EOC, but now the English 2, but we'll see it. And and it shows up in all the other course exams as well. So right now we're trying to get kids to do a better job of comprehending. Um, you know, the reading coaches were not provided for high school. And that's one thing that really um, I struggled with early on, you know, with being a high school person. But, um, but nevertheless, making sure that the reading coaches in the elementary level have the tools and things that they really need. And I know that um, <laughs> a lot of reading coaches say they have not got the training that they need. They don't have the time that they need. They don't get the kids that they need. Um, for the amount of time they do in the school day because there's so much of stuff going on in the building. So I've been challenged by my elementary colleagues to kind of say, hey, let's get creative with the schedule. Um, get those kids into these reading workshops, these small groups, and kind of really make sure that these kids are getting the reading uh, strategies they need to be successful. Um, because when they get to high school, it shows up. And, you know, as these kids matriculate through the school system, we need to make sure that everyone's going to act the road and make sure these kids are reading. But honestly, right now, we're, we're really um, – we're really beating our teachers up a little bit about, you know, making sure that we add some level of literacy to every lesson. Um, and some teachers are good at it, right, and some teachers are not because every teacher has not been trained, um, you know, trained in that area. 
and it's just been hard at the high school level to kind of catch kids up. But we've definitely been trying to get kids to understand the comprehension piece. Um, and teachers have been doing a lot of different things. I mean, I have more vocabulary, more word walls in high school I've ever seen before, uh, more vocabulary <laughs> stuff, um, you know, more writing. You know, writing in chemistry class is something that was different. I even like AP European history, the amount of writing that those teachers are doing now is phenomenal. But, um, but the thing is, it's just it's something new for high school. Um, and high school people have not been trained to teach kids how to read. So once those, those teachers get those resources and courses off the way, and when we have our reading, our literacy courses, we have building come in, that's what they're doing. They're teaching our teachers small reading strategies and tips to kind of enhance on these kids' ability to read. And some kids are better than the others, but one thing we've learned that <laughs> practice makes perfect in reading. And if kids are not practicing that skill, they're not going to get it. So we challenging our kids to read at home. Um, you know, we challenging the kids to get away from the, the old digital the digital textbook to get the old book back out, right? You know, even though the kids don't want to carry their book back because the book is so heavy, um, you know, you need to read the textbook. But yes, ma'am, but reading loss is very, very real, and it's also exciting in, in some instances because kids have such a, you know, such a gap. But also I think it's something that can be, it can be closed if everybody does an active role and active part. And I must say that I know a lot of teachers that struggle with it, and not because they don't have a passion for it, they just haven't been trained in it. And I think that the state has to do a better job at some point in if we're going to keep the research and seed process in place, how are we going to handle it? How are we going to push it to the secondary level and make it more um, meaningful for secondary teachers to learn how to help the um, kids become more literal? Wow. Thank you so much for answering those questions, um, Mr. Pearson. Um, Minister Margo has a question for you. <clears throat> I do. First of all, I want to thank you because just listening to you, it's wonderful to hear a principal who is so engaged and clearly passionate about what you do because you're able to speak on really every level or every um, every area that concerns your school, as you say, in your building. So I, I just think that's awesome. <laughs> but on the side of the parents, I have a question concerning that. What would be your advice? For today's parents, how can they truly help to encourage their children to want to learn more and to be more committed to their studies, given many of the transitions that they've been in? Oh, man. Um, well, thank you for the question. I definitely challenge all the parents to, to get involved and get engaged with your kids and, and let it be a collaborative event and a collaborative thing. Have those conversations about education on a daily basis, but actually being visible. Um, I was just talking to a colleague last week about the amount of teachers, the amount of kids and parents we do not see in the building anymore. Um, at one point in education, I got into this thing 13, 14 years ago, it was a normal occurrence to see parents in the building, right? And I saw it diminish over the years to the point now where I know we have restrictions on visitors, but I think it was something we said about when kids saw their parents in the building, just doing a, a check, um, meeting with the guidance counselor, you know, checking on my schedule for next semester, um, seeing what classes will be available next school year, just things of that nature. I think kids were more engaged in their learning because they felt like their parents actually cared about their learning. That's a lot of parents, you know, even though you don't understand what's going on, because school has changed, right? I mean, school is no longer the way right. it was, you know, when I went to school. But school has changed, and I get that, and I understand it could be, it could be a little um, – intimidating for parents, 
when you walk into a school and the kids talking about taking AP European and ceramics and 3D digital drawing in the class that they don't really understand and know what is the reason for, but this is things that those kids are passionate about. So I tell parents all the right. time, look, get in the building and show your kids that you are in this with them as well. And it's not about beating them up about not doing a homework assignment or having two targets or things of that nature, but just come in and having a conversation with either teacher, guidance counselor, administration, or just come to check on you. I mean, I had parents not even come to school, hey, can I get my child to come up to the front office? Yes, no, what you need? I'm going to check on them just to see if they're doing okay today, doing their lunch break. Small things like that, you know, especially mm-hmm. when kids are getting ready to make a lifelong decision as far as what they can do after high school. Um, I think those things are very beneficial. Um, I really, I really am passionate. I'm really passionate about kids getting involved in extracurricular, so their parents can actually see what they do during the school day. So if your child is definitely mm-hmm. one of those kids that's in the arts and the fine arts, you know, make sure the kid is very active in it, and also come to the concerts, come to the extracurricular events. Um, your child's in drama. Uh, come to the production, right? Don't just have your child come to practice, come to the class every day, and not come to the actual production. So engage your children. So one thing in our building we do, we we try to get freshmen from day one, find you something to tap into and give it your all. And you can change it, right? And we don't mind if you change and jump to the club, the organization, and things of that nature, but get involved. But I'll challenge the parents that once your child gets involved, I want you to be an active member of that organization, that group as well be it the booster club, be it setting up for the drama production, help making props, being a band parent, you know, basketball team mom, you know, just being an active member of the school in the, in the, in, in the culture, mm-hmm. it helps the family. Um, I think so, so long we think that, you know, the parent has to do, you know, um, not have enough time to do that. You know, if you just pick one basketball game, I, keep, I pick, you know, one FBLA event, or I pick one drama club production, or I pick one ROTC event to show up at, your child will remember that. And if you're the parent that bought the snacks or you're the parent that organized the trip or whatever it is, the kid's going to all, they're going to say, you know what, my parent actually cares about what I'm doing every day from 8 to 3. And I think those are the things that, you know, we've lost over time. Um, you know, and I think and now it's, it's one of those things we have to get back if we want those kids to really engage back into school because so many of them are unmotivated now because they've lost, you know, that two years of face-to-face learning, that community, that relationship, that all that stuff that we used to have when we were in school, they lost it, and a lot of them don't know how to get it back. So I think in order to get it back, yeah. I just I think the, the parents have to really, you know, just show kids that they care in the best way they can. And those are just some examples that I gave. But, um, but yeah, I think that parents will have to really just get back into the building and get back involved before, <laughs> I would tell them, before I have to call you, right? Don't. Don't be the parent that I right. can call you, you know, when something went bad. You know, I want to see you before I can make that phone call about something that we need to have a conversation about your child in a different manner. Um, so be that parent. You know, don't be the parent I have to call and find and look for. And, you know, and then when you come, it's a, the dialogue is different because, one, there's no relationship between you and the school. <laughs> and, um, and that's a barrier you have to tear down before you can even make sure the kid is going to be successful moving forward, whatever we're talking about. Okay. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, those are some some very good points, but I'm just wondering, um, especially with the situation that we're dealing with, um, it's kind of hard because most schools right now are not even allowing you to come in because I would go to the elementary school and read, and, I mean, I'm not able to do that now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely getting challenging. And, um, I mean, we've been – 
man, we've been challenged so much with it. Um, and, and even like we're getting kids into colleges, recruiters, and having visit in the building, it's definitely become a challenge. But I've been to a lot of parents. A lot of parents, are, you know, all my PTA parents and those booster club parents are kind of beating at the door about what they can do. But one thing I've noticed is that a lot of schools are still doing certain extracurricular events. So just being available for those things when they do arrive, on um, the field mm-hmm. trips or the virtual field trips or, you know, be it the um, – you know, being involved in the virtual lesson of the day, right? So, I mean, I've had I have parents being involved in the chemistry lesson by being at home doing a part of the lesson for the teacher, right? Just being oh. at home doing a part of the lesson for the teacher, showing some items or whatever the case may be. So kind of get with the teacher and kind of figure out what can you do in a virtual capacity that can mm-hmm. benefit the kids or what what do they need, you know, supplies, um, you know, can you get a prop? Can you bring in, um, you know, extra Clorox wipes? Whatever it is that you can do, mm-hmm. and those so make sure that the kids are know that you're actually being involved in the educational process. Still, I think it um it, it'll help, but you're right though. It is so hard right now to get those parents involved. I know a high school is a little bit easier because we have so many extracurriculars. In elementary schools, kind of you know, in the middle school, they they're, they're limited in those opportunities. But I wouldn't bet most teachers if you ask them, just get creative and kind of figure out a way. What can I do? Um, mm-hmm. I've had teachers do roundtable discussions and invite parents, you know, say, okay, we're having a debate today on, you know, a sociology class, and I'm inviting you know, five parents. You know, I send home a, a Google link to all the parents who wants to sign up for it, and you have five parents sign up for it and let the parents debate in front of the kids, you know, and kind of, you know, just so the kids yeah. can see that the parents are engaged in the learning, um, you know, but it's, it's has to be virtual, which is sad now, um, but <laughs> hopefully we'll get through this next Hopefully we get to this hump right here that we're in and we get back to having some more visitors into the building. But like you said, so these parents can get back to reading and, you know, chaperone and, you know, right. help out more lunch and all those good things so the kids can see the parents back in the building. Right. But you know what, Nick, and I have to ask this question. I, uh, I'm mm-hmm. so – I'm really happy that um, that you're on um, because just like um, Minister Margot said, I mean, you, you can see that you're passionate about what you're doing. And it sounds like you have a lot more of innovative ideas. Um, definitely from listening to you, it sounds like you definitely have the teacher buy-in, but it speaks to who you are. So what I'm wondering is, is it because you've been around educators all your life that you understand some of the – you understand the struggle Yes, I think that does play a role in it. Um, you know, hearing those conversations earlier in life and my parents making me value education. Um, my parents were very, um, you know, you know, very serious about education in our household just because, you know, when your mother's an assistant principal, you're going to do, you know, you're going you're gonna to walk the line very tight, right? You know, so you don't, you don't want to do those kind of things. Your daddy, you know, your dad's in the teaching business as well, so you don't want your parents to come to the school. So, yes, I do have a passion because of that. But the thing is, though, uh, I ran from education, right? So when I went to college, my parents were like, you need to be in education. I went and got a business degree first. You know, I, I was not really – I was the person that was anti-education because it was always talked about in my home. Um, so I fought it as long as I could. But I think the passion and the commitment I have to it is basically because of my parents. Another thing, and the other reason is I think that it's um, – from a black male perspective, it's almost disrespectful for me to not be serious about education when I think about what my forefathers had to go through for me to have the right to get an education. So I've always been – I was in the one to kind of look at it from that, that bird side, that bird eye view as well. Like, you know, you talk about what Brown, Brown v. Education was, what, 1954, 55, right? So you're talking about my father 
was in South Carolina State when the Orange Bay Massacre took place. He went through segregated and unsegregated schools, in a sense, and to hear his stories and what he had to do to fight to get educated and for me to not value the education was a non-negotiable for me. Um, so now when I deal with students, especially students that look like me, and students that don't look like me, I want you to understand that someone fought for the right for you to get education. So right. this education thing is not a, it's not a joke. It's not something, it's not a fad. It's not something that you're doing because you want your parents to get locked up for truancy. You need to understand that this is something that has been fought for for you to get. This is not mm-hmm. your, you know, it's your right now, but you understand that someone had to lose their lives so you'd have Absolutely. opportunity to sit in this classroom and <laughs> have opportunity to learn. A lot of times when I tell parents that and I tell kids that, I tell teachers that, some of them take it, you know, take it, you know, take it differently, but it's the truth. I mean, we have to understand that education is something that was not for everyone at one point. So, mm-hmm. so when I sit down with teachers and especially young first-year teachers, second-year teachers, I want them to understand that first, that these kids, have the right to a free but a great education experience. You see what I'm saying? A lot of times mm-hmm. we say, you know, we say a free and appropriate education. No, I want them to have a great education experience. And and yeah. meet kids. A teacher told me this, and I was, man, I was assistant principal in Chesterfield County. Her name is Delphine Newman. She, and I talked to her one day, and we were talking about, um, we had a single gender boy class, and she was able to get these boys to really engage in learning, um, behave, um, we had some of the worst, worst kids in the building in her class. And that's what she wanted every year. So I started asking them, well, why do you want these kids? And how are you able to get these kids to learn? And so the first thing I do with the creation is I get their respect. That's right. And they respect me as a person. I respect them as students. But the second thing is I meet with all these parents and I identify the kids' feelings honestly with their parents. And if your child is a mm-hmm. student, right, if your child is going to be a student, so whatever your child had going on in life before they got to my classroom, Whatever learning deficiencies they may have experienced, or they've been out of school, you've been moving, <clears throat> grandmother been raising them, whatever they experienced, they brought them to me right now as a C student. So what your child's going to be in my room, your child better be the best C student they can be. And I'm going to push them to be a B student. And so what she did was she set realistic goals for every kid in the class. And after the education, even me as a young educator, we taught every kid to be an all-A student. You need to learn these these facts, you need learning mm-hmm. information to be to validity. And that's mm-hmm. not every kid's story. And once you mm-hmm. have to be honest right. with kids, and one, identify their maximum level of education and then get that level and then push mm-hmm. them a little bit more, you'll see that light bulb yeah. come on in kids. And I mm-hmm. think that's where the success comes from. And until you get to that part in teaching kids, you know, we're never going to get to a point where we're fully back educating kids the way that I think that we should. For my passion over where we should do it. So when I get in the classroom with teachers, I had to talk to her on conversation with teachers and parents in that aspect. You know, I want to know what is your kid's natural potential. Tell it to me. Like, let me know because I don't want to make your child feel inferior. I miss your child, Mark, because your child is a D student. And we, we, we need to understand that and we need to, you know, agree upon that as a unit. Mm-hmm. But we want to do, by the time they need this class here, we're going to make them the best C student in the building. And then next year, we're going to push them to be the beast to them, but we're not going to overshoot these kids. And right. a lot of kids are discouraged because teachers are in the classroom teaching so far over their head and have goals that they cannot even accomplish or reach, and they're discouraged. So um, that's where my passion comes from. I mean, I'm just <laughs> one of those people that I look at education from, you know, from a, from a slavery mindset to mm-hmm. me not having the opportunity to get it 
And I think that came from going to HBCU, you know, being in a in an environment where, you know, education was spoken differently than some other institutions of higher learning, right? So um, mm-hmm. but that's what the passion for my parents and me just understanding <laughs> that this is not, it wasn't given to me, right? This, somebody had a, somebody fought for this. So I'm going to fight for it as well. Mm-hmm. Man. Man, it has truly been a pleasure um, just listening to you. Um, yes, at home. I mean, wow. Um, Nick, you may have a whole bunch of teachers trying to apply to come to summer high school. <laughs> Right, and I might be applying for a psych position. I said, I might be applying for a psych position. That is amazing. You are an amazing leader. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. Um, but yeah, but sometimes wow. we, but we do have our struggles as well. We do, we do fight the problems as they arise. But, but definitely, though, it is a great place. I tell everybody, it is one of the best places I've worked at so far. And um, and I enjoy every minute of it. Well, I, I have to tell you, I, I'm truly, I'm, I'm proud of you. I mean, and especially with as as, lar- as large as um, Sumter, you know, Sumter High School is. Um, I'm I'm proud of you. I am, and I, I'm proud to to say that I know you. I mean, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I am. I'm I'm very proud of you, Nick, and um, um, just want to encourage you just to continue. Um, I know you have your your wife is there, and she will make sure that she's going to encourage you. And I know that you guys encourage each other. Um, but um, just with having both of you on the show at different times, man, you two are an amazing, amazing couple of educators. I'm I'm definitely proud of you all. Um, I'm gonna give you a few minutes to um, do a wrap up. But what I want to say is, man, this month has went by so fast, um, and I, I've just been honored to share the platform with Minister Margot and Ms. Capriche White. I mean, this is it, it has truly been an honor this month. It, it really, the month always seems like once it starts moving, um, it goes by really fast, and you ladies, I truly thank you all for just taking the time out of your busy month to share the platform with me. Um, it has definitely been a pleasure. Um, I don't know what else to say, man. I just, I, I, I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. So, um, Minister Margot, I want to give you mm-hmm. um, the opportunity to just to give some words of, of encouragement for the other teachers and educators out here, um, the parents, and also let everyone know where they could um, purchase your book. Okay. Well, first of all, I just want to say that it has been an honor to be a part of this platform, and so I do thank you. I share um, a love for lifelong learning, and I anybody that knows me knows that I believe in you learning and growing as much as you possibly can um, because, as my grandfather used to tell me as a little girl, get something in your head that no one can take away from you. And I absolutely believe that with everything in me, and that was what really directed me to become 
an educator, you know, just having people that cared about my learning and what was going to happen in my life. And so, Mr. Pearson, I agree with you, and I thank you because you said something that means a lot to me. You said that you fight for that thing, for education. And I love the fact that you fight for it because you recognize that someone fought for it so that you could be really in the capacity that you're in today. So it's just just such a great honor. Mm-hmm. Um, my encouragement for other teachers like myself, for other administrators, whatever, other parents, My encouragement is to know that we are passing through this system that we are in, that it's not going to be this way always. And so every decision that we make, everything that we do and don't do, recognize that it affects something of tomorrow. So as a classroom teacher, my encouragement is to Do all and be all that you can be for the sake of the kids because Mm -hmm. we're there for that purpose. And for the administrators, my encouragement is make sure that you are authentic in everything that you do and remember that the product is the future. Mm -hmm. And so I just... I am so very grateful um, for this month's platform. I think if you you literally could go an entire year with different subjects and different people just to be able to share because this is such a, a grave need right now for people to understand the value of education and the value of having good educators, people who are truly committed, not because of a payday, but they're Mm -hmm. committed because they have a personal investment in the well-being of the future, being the children. Mm -hmm. But um, as you said, how can people contact me and purchase my book and all? Um, You can contact me via margowwilliams.com or um, you can purchase your book online from my website, or you can go to Amazon.com. And um, the book is called Petty Pain, Understanding the Assignment of Offense. So I do thank you, and um, God bless everyone that we've spoken to and um, have listened to this past month. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Ms. Caprice White, I'm, I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm proud of you as well. Um, because you're you're I think that you you're an outstanding young lady. Um and there's so much more for you to do. Um you you're young in, in, in this industry. Um and I just think that you're definitely operating in your calling and I just see so much more for you as well. Um again I'm honored to share the platform with you, and I thank you so much for being on. So I want to give you that same opportunity to um, give us some, some last words. 
Well, thank you so much, Tyra, for allowing me to come on your platform. And it's funny that you say that you feel that this is my calling because I will be quite honest with you. I was ready to leave <laughs> as of last year. Um, I, I really was. But I am not going to let my frustration with the education system um, deter me from my calling. Instead, I'm going to let it motivate me to continue to be an agent of change. Absolutely. And so I am mm-hmm. going to be pursuing my doctorate very in the next couple of weeks, actually, okay. in education leadership. And I just wanted to personally thank you for connecting me with like-minded educators, um, more experienced educators who have the mindset to where I'm trying to be, who are in the classrooms are a part of admin teams are, you know, at the collegiate level doing the work that I aspire to do. And I just want to just thank you so, so very much for the opportunity. Uh, you are welcome. Mr. Pearson. <laughs> Mr. Pearson. <laughs> I will let you have the, the closing platform here. Um, whatever words, encouragement, whatever you want to leave the listeners with, um, I want to give you that opportunity. Well, first, I want to thank I want to thank all of y'all for the platform, the opportunity to join y'all. Uh, I've been able to listen, oh uh, man, all you know, all month and kind of hear what people were saying and kind of get some hear some of the feedback. Um, but nevertheless, I definitely think that the type of education is in a in a great place right now through all the trials and turmoil and things that are new that we're trying to figure out. I think this place is a great place. And I'm going to take the time to encourage all of the old teachers and the new teachers. I think mm-hmm. that so often we forget about the teachers that came before us in education. Um, those people like my parents that paved the way for educators like myself to be educated and been dealing with a lot of issues that we've been dealing with for a long time in education, but COVID has kind of brought us to the forefront. And mm-hmm. to kind of push, push aside the work that was done in some of those areas pre-COVID, like the social-emotional learning, all this kind of stuff, all that kind of stuff, been in education. It's been there. It's been an issue. been there. But COVID kind of brought it to the forefront because it affected everybody, most of the different demographic. But these teachers have been dealing with so many issues for a long time and have been, you know, on the front lines fighting, you know, to make sure these kids are educated for a long time. So I want to make sure I thank the teachers you know, former teachers and the current teachers are all the work that you do, um, that you never get that pat on the back, you never get that, you know, that, that, that you know, that hurrah, you get that, that parade, or you get that extra bonus check at the end of the month. You know, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, even as an administrator, you know, me leading is different than teaching. And I try to make sure I respect that on a daily basis. So to all the teachers, kudos to what you do on a daily basis. Keep doing what you're doing. You're making a difference. Um, don't let nobody tell you you're not making a difference. Continue to plan effective lessons, continue to engage kids, and continue to be that pillar in your community that kids can look at to see that there are still good people here on this earth. Uh, but keep kids first. I won't leave without this. You know, anytime you make a decision in this profession, mm-hmm. make sure we're keeping kids first. And that's why I challenge my admin team, my teachers, even some of my district level staff. Is what we're doing keeping kids first? If what we're doing, every decision we make, if it's not about kids being first, if it's about politics, about budgeting, finance, if it's not about keeping kids first, we're making the wrong decision. And we need to go back to the That's wrong moment and right decision. So, um, so keep kids first in everything that you do. Tyra, you keep doing what you're doing. Great platform, great month. 
you know, keep promoting education, keep promoting causes, keep promoting doing good in your community, and keep bringing on good folks. Uh, Minister Margo, thank you for those words of encouragement as well. Appreciate it. Thank you for the work that you're doing. And I commend you guys for being on here all month. No doubt. I just had an hour, and I can only imagine, you know, doing it for a whole month. So I commend you guys for, you know, staying the course this month and making sure that the listeners community were getting what they needed to get out of these educators. So, Tyra, thank you, and keep doing the good work. Thank you, thank you. Well, you all, um, I definitely want you to listen up. Next month we will have the changing of the guard, um, and our mental health professional will be Mr. James Bingley, and our minister will be Mrs. Um, Denise Walden. And our topic, we're going to deal with the prison system. So I encourage you all to come back and listen up next month, share it with a friend. And, um, hey, this is Pressure Points Unpacked. I'm your host, Tyra Little, and I look forward to being with you all next month. It's the Pressure Points Unpacked podcast with host Tyra Kiki Little. We're live Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our show deals with personal and community issues by getting to the root cause and cause.